All right, we're talking about conversations about the faith, which is the, the, the facts, the propositions, the ideas that make up our faith, um, the, the faith that God has given to us and that we express. So we talked about the need to share our faith, the goal of being prepared to share our faith, and then the goal of becoming confident that we're able to share our faith. We talked about um, these types of conversations as having multiple purposes. Sometimes it's proof, defend, uh, showing others that, uh, that Christianity is logically consistent, that it's reasonable to believe it. We talked about conversations that are defense. People will make accusations against the Christian faith, and we need the ability to uh, dispute those accusations. And then we talked about offense, that people believe a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense, and that it's uh, when we view those things not as winning a fight against somebody or showing that we're smart, but when we view those things as seeing people that are wrapped up in lies that are ultimately leading them to death, we should be willing to go on offense, go on the attack against lies and unbelief so that people will uh, have a chance to see what is true. Now we're going through uh, a set of Bible passages to talk about the biblical calling, the fact that we need to have these conversations, that scripture makes it clear that this is something that we are called to do, that it's important for us to do. So first we looked at 1 Peter 3, and there we saw uh, a posture for these conversations that, that uh, we set apart Christ as Lord in our speech. The, essence, oh, sorry, the context was that they were being persecuted uh, suffering, So people say, well, your faith can't be true because if your faith was true, then your life would be perfect and nothing would go wrong and you wouldn't suffer and everybody would like you and you'd be healthy and have lots of money. And they, out of that context, they say, no, 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 that's not what this is about at all. We're going to set apart Christ as Lord. The essence of Peter's uh, instruction there is that the Christians would always be prepared to have those conversations. And then Peter talked about the manner of those conversations, that we would have them with gentleness and respect. Uh, so the next text I want to look at is Jude. And uh, Justin, would you read Jude 1, 3? Beloved, although I was e very eager to write to you about our common salvation, it's not necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Thank you. All right, so once again, let's talk about context. Because the context in Jude is different than the context in Peter. Does anybody know what Jude is about? What's happening in Jude? What's the context? There's a little hint of it there in the verse Justin read, but what, what is Jude dealing with? Exactly. Yep, heresies within the church. It's an internal concern. So whereas Peter is an external concern, we're being persecuted by unbelievers, Jude is an internal concern of false teaching and heresies and attacks within the church. So this is a good reminder that apologetics or these types of conversations about our faith are not just for unbelievers. They're also for use within the church itself as we point one another towards truth and as we, uh, as we point, remember what I said last week, for the purposes of this class, I don't really care about making the distinction 
within an individual of are they an unbeliever or are they just a really, really, really immature baby believer who doesn't know much Bible or truth yet? Obviously, that matters for the sake of their souls, but for the sake of these conversations, it doesn't because we're not the ones that can really tell the difference anyway. It's just too hard for us to judge because you look at people and when they have no wisdom and they have very little truth, you don't have a lot of other fruit you could judge their faith on. But that doesn't mean they're unbelievers. It might mean they don't have a lot of wisdom and they don't have a lot of truth. God has called them to himself and now they need to grow in their faith. So for our purposes, the conversation is pretty much the same. We're pointing them away from error and toward truth. Um, so the concern here, that context is false teaching or false doctrine within the church, which happens to be the subject of today's sermon in the text from Micah, where the prophets um, in Micah's day, who are actual prophets of God, they're unionized, card-carrying members of the prophet class, they are uh, not speaking the word of God to the people. They are speaking uh, what the people want to hear. And so what Micah does is exactly what Jude does here, which is to take on the responsibility of pointing even those people within the church to truth. Um, then there's the call of apologetics. And in this case, the call is to contend. He says, contend for the faith. What is, what is that? What is that? Word, I know you know what the word means, but I want you to think more broadly about the context of that word contend. What kind of ideas or context are we thinking about when we use that word? That's mm. yeah, a warfare word, isn't it? We, we, have, we have warrant to go into battle, to go to war for the faith. And I will tell you... Um, you know, some of us are wired to do that before we should and in ways that are not helpful. Some of us are wired to avoid that at all costs. Um, I don't want to pick fights. I don't want to start this unpleasant discussion. But you've got to remember what we said last week. The war is against truth and lies. The war is in the spiritual realm. It is already taking place. The question is whether or not you are going to respond to the call to participate in that war. It is not, well, if I don't do this, I can avoid the conflict. The world has no less conflict because you avoid the godly conversations you're supposed to have. The conflict just happens in the spiritual realm, in that person's heart and soul, without your participation. And so you refuse to be used by God uh, to participate in that. So it's a question of whether or not we're going to sit on the sidelines or whether we're going to fight in it. Now, how we fight is critically important, and that'll be a huge function of this class, but we must fight. What are we contending for? Ha ha. Here we go. I knew it was coming. Nope. Content for the faith, right? Um, and it's the faith, and that's why I'm emphasizing in this class the the faith. Um, your faith matters. Your faith matters deeply to you. Your faith matters deeply to God. God loves your faith. He gave you your faith. He will judge you on the basis of your faith. And your righteousness will be credited to you on the basis of your faith. Do not hear me say your faith does not matter. 
It does. When we are talking about these kinds of conversations, the faith matters much more. And I will tell you why that distinction is really important to get in your brains. Think about going on the defensive in these kinds of conversations. When somebody attacks Christianity, when somebody challenges or criticizes something that you believe, do you think it affects your response depending on whether or not you feel like they're attacking your faith or the faith? Can you see how if you primarily feel like they're attacking my faith, what am I going to do? I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to defend me. I'm not going to defend the faith. I'm going to defend me. I'm a reasonable person. I believe smart things. I'm not a dummy. I'm not, right. I defend me. But these conversations can't be about defending me. And so they can't be about defending my faith. They have to be about defending the faith. Um, sometimes if we feel like we're defending our faith, we get defensive about it. And, and the, our goal then, instead of showing the person the truth of Christ, becomes making ourselves feel better. That, that, that we're actually okay. Even though this person attacked us, I, I know I'm okay. I'm, I, that's not the goal. The goal is to defend the distinctive truths of the Christian Um, the core of these kinds of conversations is that defense of the, the facts, the propositions on which Christianity is based. So that means two things. If you're going to have these conversations, if you're going to defend the faith, uh, reactively as defense, proactively as offense, if you're going to defend the faith, you have to know two things. One, you have to know the faith. You actually have to know the doctrines of Christianity. You have to know what you believe and why you believe it. You have to know what scripture says, and you got to know why it matters what scripture says. And, and you, you've got to know what this faith is made up of. That's why we're doing what we're doing in the various Sunday school classes with children and in the Sunday school class with adults. We want our youngest children to get these uh, Bible stories, Bible characters, Bible uh, truths in their minds. And then as our kids get a little older, we want them to learn the catechism, not because that's the Bible, but because it's a great summary of what the Bible teaches. And the Bible's a really long book. And it's much easier if we can get these words in our children's heads to then be able to explain the value and the meaning and the truth of those words. And then in here, normally we're going through Bible books together so that we know what is the faith. Because if we're going to defend it, we have to know it. But the second thing that has to be true, so one is no. But you know what the second thing is? You have to believe that it's worth fighting for. or contending for. I know a lot of things about baseball statistics, but I don't think they're worth fighting, 
contending for. Your willingness to engage in contending for the faith is not ultimately a function of your personality and how you're wired. It's ultimately a function of how much you believe it's worth fighting for. Not for the sake of being right, but because you understand the consequences of being wrong. That image of people being wrapped up in barbed wires of lies and sinking in the ocean to their death. Would you not dive in and try to help? Even It's your worst enemy. It's your worst enemy. And they're wrapped in barbed wire and thrown into the East River. Would you not try to help? And so you've got to understand, you've got to see that the lies of the world are doing that to people. The stakes are not just that high, but they're higher, eternal death, not just physical death. And if you don't think that's worth contending for, you don't love. And so then if you say you love God, but you won't dive in and save that person, in First John, God calls you a liar. Can't both be true can't love God and not love people who are wrapped up in sin and lies and dying. My seminary professor, Mike Kruger, said, you have to be a theologian before you are a philosopher. And he said it because um, it's the, a lot of times when people think about evangelism or apologetics or conversations about their faith, They're doing it on this high academic level of philosophy. I know the proofs for the existence of God. I know the ontological arguments for why the world is the way it is. And his response was always, that's great, that's fine. But are you a theologian? Do you you know God? Do you love God? Do you see what we're contending for and why that matters so much? And then once you are that, then you can go be a philosopher if you want to. Uh, and engage in that level of discussion. For us, most of us don't want to have that level of discussion. But can we at least contend for the faith in the natural context that God has given us in our, in our uh, homes and workplaces and neighborhoods and associations and co-ops and at the job and all those things? Questions about the Jude text. Mm-hmm. But I guess maybe this is reverse psychology. I sort of need to know it's a little bit personal, not like Justin, but then that motivates me yeah. to go bigger, you know? Um, so the worth fighting for, that's like the buy-in that I need, you know? Yeah, and and certain, and it's it's that tough balance, right? Because it is our faith, and our faith does matter. And so the personal element of it is there. But a lot of us, and I guess this is a question of how we're wired, sometimes have to zoom out and say, what do I think is worth fighting for? Do I think the faith apart from me is worth fighting for? Or do I only think this is worth fighting for because I'm defending myself? I'm defending what I believe. I'm defending my reputation. I'm defending me. That part's not okay. Isn't that what ends up generally happening? Because people don't know the faith. They know their personal faith. And therefore, all argumentation comes down to... I feel as though. Faith. This yeah. is how I... 
I just why I believe and so then your foundation you're standing on is is your personal faith, which is I'm not I'm gonna say subjective, that's sloppy, but not it is objective, but it's subjective to us who are looking instead of the faith, which is objective at all times and all places. I had this discussion with uh, actually a journalist that I had admired for a long time. He's a technology journalist and uh, worked for the Chicago Sun-Times for a long time. And uh, he was kind enough. He lives in Providence now. And when I was up in Rhode Island a few years ago, I sent him an email and he agreed to have lunch with me. And it was fun. Got to meet and have this conversation. Um, but one of, my, one of my critiques of him, he's on a lot of podcasts, was that whereas he used to say, I think, and then he would say something. You could tell from listening to him, he made the conscious choice that he never said that anymore. And he replaced it with, I feel as though. I feel as though, and he would never say I think again. And so I was thinking about this and reflecting on it, like that is the cultural trend, is let's even remove the language of objective reality. Because if I say, I think such and such, then somebody else can say, well, you're wrong. Let me show you what is factually incorrect about what you're claiming. But if you say, I feel as though, well, you can't argue with my feelings. And that is where a lot of this devolves into for two reasons. One is people don't know the faith well. And so we get insecure arguing about the faith because the moment the person that we're talking to says something about which we're unsure either from another faith tradition or because they watch something on the History Channel or, or read a Bart Ehrman book. They say something, and then we get really insecure. Like, oh, they seem more sure about that than I am sure about not that. So then we have to retreat into what we think. Um, and then the other thing is the personal part, is we get mad when somebody is telling us that our faith is wrong or that they think our faith is ridiculous or that this thing that we believe is unacceptable. Um, that's going to be a big point in the, in the sermon today of all the pressure on us inside the church and outside the church to believe lies. And my fear is where the pendulum is sl- swung within the church, um, the idea of you swallow the meat and you spit out the bones is a good idea. That's important. There are no perfect human teachers. There are lots of things I say that by the power of the Holy Spirit should go in one ear and out the other. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean we should be okay with really messed up ratios on meat to bones. And so much teaching that comes from the church, that comes from Christian authors, I'm not saying there's no good in it, but the meat to bone ratio is really out of proportion. And so eventually you get to the question of why bother? There's so much stuff out there where the ratio is better, where there's 5% of bones that you're spitting out. But you've got Christians that get really, really mad. If I tell you, you know, I had the discussion on the plane with somebody about why I thought Girl, Wash Your Face was not the most helpful book they could be reading. And what, what they begin arguing is that I'm saying there is zero truthful There are zero truthful statements in this book, and this book could never do anything good for anyone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if your goal is to learn how God tells us to respond to this type of situation, you got to sift through a lot of junk to get the gold nuggets out of that book. Uh, Just say one more thing about the faith and the personal faith, which struck me 
Someone who contends for the faith and their personal faith, I'm just thinking about the people who put a lot of stock in people's testimony, you know, influence, what, like, our faith should matter not at all for the faith because of these types of revelations that can happen, these types of failings. It should be heartbreaking when a public ministry figure or a ministry figure who was influential in our lives, a previous pastor, a previous youth pastor. It should be heartbreaking when you see that person fall. It should do nothing for your trust in the faith. But it does a ton because people didn't come to believe the faith. They came to believe this person of faith. And then when that person crashes and burns, um, you're left with a pile of mess rather than true heartbreaking grief. I mean, it is heartbreaking, the Ravi Zacharias thing. It does not affect the faith at all. At all. Um, all right, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We read this one last week, so I'll read it quickly. Uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The enemy of the apologist. This is really, really critical getting the theological point in our heads so that when we get to the practical application later, there's an important connection. Apologetic, evangelistic, faith conversation battles are spiritual battles. And therefore, our enemy is not the person we're talking to. Our enemy is the one in the spiritual realm who is deceiving them. So when we are at our wit's end with an individual about the weakness or the the insubstantial nature of their faith, if it even exists, when we're dealing with these baby, baby Christians or even not Christians at all, and, and we're just about to lose it with them, We do well to remind ourselves that that battle that we're in is in the context of a much bigger fight and that our enemy is not them, but our enemy is the one in the spiritual realm who is deceiving them. This text also talks about the weapon of our fight. Our weapon is not of this world, and in fact, our weapon is not valued by this world. Smooth talk, riveting presentations, impressive delivery, oratory debate skills are useful, but these are not our weapons. Paul was great at faith conversations, the second Corinthians apostle Paul, not me. Paul, I speak about myself in the third person all the time. Paul was great at, at faith conversations despite an apparent shortcoming in all of those areas. He was not as good as the professional philosophers 
he was not as polished. Uh, he was very smart, but he wasn't as articulate as they were. You can tell he's a better writer than he is a speaker. He's an incredible writer. But you've met people like that before. You may be like that, where when you feel like you have time to sit down and write and look at your words on paper and say what you want to say, you feel pretty good about your ability to communicate. When somebody puts you on the spot and you got to say something, you feel like you don't know the English language. Um, our weapon is not of this world, and the world hates our weapon. I decrease so that he can increase. Paul was really good at these faith conversations. He and the teachers of the New Testament, the servants of the New Testament, um, the people that Paul thanks at the ends of his letters, men and women, these are the people that are our examples of how to conduct ourselves in the faith, not people who are, who are church famous. Um, who's got 2 Corinthians 11.6? Your weapon is the truth of God, the word of God. So the only skill that you need, I mean human skill that you need to be effective in faith conversations is the ability to make that word clear. You need to know it and you need to have given some thought to how to articulate that in your own words, how to make it clear what scriptures are useful to you. You could have one of these faith conversations where all you're doing is regurgitating scripture to someone in your own words. And they don't know that's what you're doing because they don't know scripture. But you don't have to worry, oh, what in the world do I say to them? Say God's words. Say God's words the way you would say them across the table to a friend. That is an incredibly powerful weapon. And it is not the weapon of a master's degree in philosophy or um, uh, winning debate trophies or things like that. The other weapon of the apologist besides God's word is God's power. We have no power in these conversations that isn't God's. And what we're asking for in conversations about faith is, is to be used by God for his supernatural work. If, if you, you, you cannot believe that you can change someone's heart. We can't even change our spouse's habits about toothpaste. I, I mean, that's sincerely. <laughs> look, look. Look at, I mean, all of us, each of us is married. So look at the things about the other person that you have endeavored desperately to change. And you failed. You can't do it. You can't change people, even on stupid stuff. You certainly can't change hearts on eternal stuff. So when you come into these conversations, your desire is that God would give you his power to be used as a part of the supernatural work that he would be pleased to do in them. That's our weapon. His word, his power, which is why we should pray so much, because we can't possibly do it without it. 
one of the things about sermons is I, I think there's uh, pretty good stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor. Now, y'all, that's not an invitation to come tell me which parts I should have taken out of the sermon to replace with this. But uh, there's a really neat contrast in Hebrew in this morning's passage of um, the false prophets when God gives his judgment against them, which is that he's going to take his uh, revelation away from them so they'll no longer be able to see anything from God. And the the language is this beautiful uh, like illustration of a balloon being deflated. All the air went out from them when God's revelation goes away. And then in the very next passage, uh, verse, Micah describes himself as a balloon not exactly, but as a balloon being filled up with the power of God. So this idea of the empty windbags get emptied out, (laughs) but those who empty themselves, God fills up with his power. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible contrast about the weapons that we have for this fight. Questions about the second Corinthians passage. When it comes to changing my own habits, what does not work for me is becoming convinced that a particular habit is bad. So French fries as, a, as an entree. That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that's bad for me. I've seen my cholesterol. It does nothing. It does nothing to change my desire or my habit for french fries as an entree. The only thing that actually does work for me is uh, finding something I enjoy as much or more to replace it with. So that would be my analogy for when we get into these gospel conversations, it's not that we should uh, rebuke ourselves or, or self-flagellate for taking it personally or for thinking I could make this about me. We have to replace that thought with something better. And I go back to the, this is a war in the spiritual realm and these people's very souls are on the line. Satan is prowling around looking to destroy people. And I do think for those of us that came out of a charismatic and Pentecostal background, one of the strange things about Reformed Presbyterianism is how little we talk about the supernatural realm. And Satan is at work. Satan has stuff to do. He's out there doing his own will until such time as God permanently and utterly restrains him. And and so we've got to see that warfare as being incredibly real and the cost of it is being very high. And that's got to motivate us to, I do want to diminish myself. Because as much as I want to defend me, I could defend me, I could own Matt in this theological argument, and at the end have done nothing to move him toward Christ. I'm trying to move you toward Christ. Uh, great question. All right. 
Let's talk about the practice. I'm going to change colors again. What is war about? What's the goal of war? War is about destruction. You destroy your opponent. That's what war is about. You either destroy your opponent to a level where they cry uncle and quit fighting, or you have to utterly destroy your opponent for the war to be over. War is about destruction. What are these faith conversations, which we've said we have to contend for, they are war, what are they setting out to destroy? Uh, Romans, somebody's got Romans 1, 18 to 23. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We do not destroy people. We destroy arguments. We destroy lies. We destroy those falsehoods which are suppressing the truth. Um, unbelievers are in intellectual rebellion against God. This is one of those things that we know to be true, but when we get into a discussion with an unbeliever, we, we seem to abandon this and, and we act surprised at their irrationality. We act surprised at some of the inconsistencies in their view. We act surprised at some of the crazy stuff they're willing to believe. But unbelievers are in intellectual rebellion against God. And so these conversations are carefully exposing that sin and calling them to first intellectual repentance. And this is tough because people think, oh, that's, that's such a Presbyterian reform thing. Intellectual, the heart is what matters. And no, 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 no. The, the heart, which is really just the Bible's word for the wants, the affections. The heart is what we want. That flows from what you believe. And when you're an intellectual rebellion against God, you believe that you, in fact, are God, that your wants are right wants. You act accordingly. So it's not just the sins that you do with your hands and your mouth that you have to repent of. you got to follow that line all the way backwards and repent of the intellectual rebellion that says, you don't tell me what's true. That's what we are destroying, are these lies, calling people to intellectual repentance. When somebody commits a horrible, offensive sin, we've talked about Ravi Zacharias since that's top of mind. Which do you believe is worse or more dangerous? The sin that he acted out or the sin in his mind, the intellectual rebellion that justified? And the answer is neither's worth worse. <laughs> They're both 
sins and rebellion and death and offense. We've got to believe that that sin of intellectual rebellion is as offensive to God. We need more of a sense of urgency for the lies that people allow themselves to believe that pull them away from Christ. Micah's accusation against the prophets this morning is you are leading God's people astray. And so we've got to have a little more of a sense of urgency. Maybe you all are okay on this. I've got to have more of a sense of urgency for um, destroying the arguments that are against God. The other thing this text says that we do is we take thoughts captive. This is also a warfare idea. What's the point of taking a prisoner? You render them ineffective in battle. They, They can't participate in the fight in a useful way anymore. This is where the intellectual part comes in. And the knowing the faith is people are gonna spout all sorts of things as an attack on Christianity, as an attack on the faith, to bring confusion, to sow unbelief. You've got to know enough to engage with those thoughts so that you can take them captive so that they're no longer participants in the conflict. There is no truth that diminishes the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are only lies that diminish the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid of them. We have to know how to take them captive. You think of it like a chessboard, and you and your opponent in these faith conversations both start out with an equal number of pieces. And what you've got to do is take their pieces off the board. And you don't take their pieces off the board by yelling at them. And you don't take their pieces off the board by throwing the board up into the air and saying, believe or perish. You, one by one, engage with their pieces and take those pieces captive. You take them off the board. Questions about that? Wrap up there. You can. You are right that people will take it very, very personally. And I think one of the issues that we're going to have to wrestle with and, and talk a lot about over the course of this class is these are offensive conversations. So you have to let the, you have to let the offense come from the truth and not from the way you do it. Um, you can't say, I want to have these conversations in a non-offensive way. There's no such thing. You're telling somebody that their worldview is bankrupt. You're telling somebody that they're in intellectual rebellion against the creator of the universe and that they're going to perish in hell for eternity if they don't see things your way. There's no realm in which you have a meaningful conversation where it's not offensive. What am I going to offend you with? I can offend you by saying that your views are so ridiculous I won't even get in your head and figure out what you're thinking. That's not helpful. So let me try. 
help me I understand where you're coming from let me let me hear how you how you're thinking this out let me we, we one of the things we can practice are the kinds of questions that will get people talking not just about what they think but how they think they're still going to be offended <laughs> but let them be offended because their folly is making them look foolish, not because you set out to make them look foolish. 